And welcome back to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante. We're back together in the saddle again. It's been a while, and uh, we've spent a lot of time talking to other people. But today, we're just talking to ourselves, and we're looking forward to it. Yep, and not for nothing. This is actually round, what, round two of this recording. We, uh, we try to keep to a schedule, I swear, but... Um, we had some technical difficulties, took us a bit a bit to figure it out, so sorry for the delay, guys, but we're still around, we're still here. We'll just uh, chalk it up to coronavirus, how's that sound? I mean, look, if nothing else, the COVID thing makes a wonderful scapegoat, so <laughs> I guess let's let's do that, yeah, yeah, so, sorry, yeah, yeah, COVID, it was, I don't know. It was COVID, it, it doesn't complain, it lets us do whatever we want. <laughs> I mean, part of being a Lovecraftian terror is you don't have human emotions, so we can blame you and you don't care. That's right, and all you do is continue doing what you're doing. Which is terrifying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's actually much of what we plan to talk about today. Existential um, terror? Uh, existential terror. And indeed, it has. If you follow any social media, I would like to say conversations, but they're more arguments most of the time. And uh, there is a lot of fear in society right now. And I think part of our issue and you might think, well, why? what does this have to do with an osteopathic podcast? Why are we talking about existential fear and all of these kinds of things? Well, mental health is a major component of the biopsychosocial model of osteopathic medicine. And Dr. Steele himself, what was his last project? So um, one of the cool things he did, among many of the cool things he did, he tried, he actually opened up a osteopathic psych hospital or psych ward. It wasn't really a hospital back in the time. His uh, his last project before he passed was um, trying to figure out how to use the osteopathic philosophy and skill set to bridge into mental health. And, I mean, look, his preliminary uh, reports, his first couple patients, apparently he was doing some good specific, specifically with schizophrenia. But at the same time, look, I'll be honest, with the documentation available and what little we know, I can't make heads or tails of it. I just know the guy gave it an honest attempt and whatever happened, happened from there, you know? Which was groundbreaking because at the time, the uh, most attempts at uh, taking care of uh, the mentally ill involved throwing people in quote-unquote uh, mental hospitals that were really more like prisons. Um, one of the first, uh, the Bedlam Hospital in Britain, even charged admittance for the general public to come and see the uh, crazies that they had. So the fact that Dr. Still was even considering a humane way of taking care of the mentally ill was groundbreaking for its time. Right. It's, it's nice to give people some dignity. Uh, everyone deserves it. Uh, and, you know, the osteopathic approach to things really looks at the entire environment surrounding a patient. We've talked about this uh, ad nauseum. And in our current situation where we have quarantined, isolated ourselves, spent very little time interacting with each other. You know, humans are a very social animal, um, very much like ants and antelope and, and uh, buffalo and, and other animals that like to congregate. So now we are taking everybody and saying, nope. You can't go to the grocery store. You can't go to your school. You can't go to your work. And certainly 
then the, the top of our list of things to consider is what's going to happen to the psyche of uh, of the human uh, race when it's isolated from itself worldwide right and it's 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 an odd phenomenon because what we if if we boil down the osteopathic thing to its base elemental thing there's this idea of of movement as the medicine right like right right uh so we're studying for our boards and it's coming up in like a month so we, we got a lot we got a lot of history like burned into our brains even more than usual but it's impending there are so many um so look part of the field is we it's it's not enough to just know the techniques and to know uh, medicine we also have to understand the the philosophical context and the historical context for our field that's actually one of the things that makes this training so cool it's like we, we actually have to know history and philosophy which yeah, that's have, not normal genealogy of what we do and we are very aware of that genealogy right and a lot of the earlier writings were talking about how it was variations of as long as there were free movement of fluids, whether that's um, blood, lymph, um, nerve fluid. This is a time before we had a really mature understanding of the nervous system, so bear with that. Yeah, we, we were still in, dealing with miasma, so. Exactly. Just You get some things wrong. It's okay. But <laughs> as long as there's free movement of these, I guess we'll call them forces or phenomenon within the body, then there is health. Um, and then right. we've talked about it so many different ways in the earlier episodes in order to keep those things moving, right? In order, to get, in order to get the lymphatic fluid to flow, to get venous drainage to return, in order to keep the nerves firing appropriately, that requires movement at the macroscopic level. It's like the, the musculoskeletal system ends up being the almost like a, like a meta-homunculus of overall health, right? If the, if the yeah, machine yeah. of movement runs well, all the stuff underneath it should be running well enough to at least support that machine. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, we have muscles that that squeeze against blood vessels, against veins to return blood to the heart and to return lymph back to the circulatory system. We have to keep these things moving. Uh, and uh, if we don't, then we get stasis or things just stop flowing. And when you get things stop flowing, you get inflammation and tissue breakdown. And when you get inflammation and tissue breakdown, then everything breaks loose. And now you have not health, but disease. And much of what we see in the disease process is stasis of some sort where things are not being filtered and moved as they should, and so they cause damage. And then now we have the situation with the coronavirus where, so let's talk about uh, levels of importance, and I'm putting things in context. Because of the way this virus works, it's tactically appropriate to stay the hell apart, right? Like if if the goal is to mitigate spread (laughs) and to get this thing to exterminate itself, we got to spread far enough that this thing doesn't get to replicate fast enough to sustain itself, right? Right. We're, we're trying to reduce how much fuel is available for the, or hosts, as it were, is available for the virus. So it, it loses its steam. It doesn't replicate so much. Right. But that also means we got to stay the heck apart from each other, which from a practical perspective means what? We're pretty much at home. And if you're home, you can't do a lot of those things that you would normally talk about, right? Like, I can't tell folks to go for a run the same way that I would like before February of 2020. Or even then, I can't have people go to the gym. I can't have people like, one of the things I had a lot of folks do, especially those who couldn't afford gym memberships was like, look, um, 
for whatever reason, no judgment, they're unemployed, they don't have much to do, so they kind of have time technically to work with their health. And I'm like, look, yeah, yeah, do the window shopping thing. Like capitalism is weird, whatever, I don't care. Do the window shopping thing. Hit up to the local mall, walk around for a bit, hang out with your family, enjoy yourself, stay on your feet. Go out for the mall walk. Right. That was uh, usually relegated to the older population. <laughs> right. But look, we got a lot of rehab patients, man. Like even myself, like when I busted my ankle once upon a time, my rehab was mall walking. Like I, I grab my crutches, throw them onto myself. Jen drive. My wife drives me to the to the mall. And then like she and my son will go out and like shop or whatever. And I'd be like doing laps around the second floor, like <laughs> Every time walking by Auntie Anne's like, not today, demon. Again, yeah. again, and again, you know? Not today. But you can't do that now. Like, dude, going to the mall right now sucks. And, and if you don't have a good trail system nearby, you can't get out as well. Now, I'm fortunate where I am because there are some trails that are relatively accessible, so we get out. But not everyone thinks about getting out. Um and so how are we going to in- encourage movement? Now, I will tell you, I've uh, been to a couple of our local sporting goods stores looking for kettlebells. Yeah, kettlebells. And hey, you sound like me, man. Hey, they're all sold out. It's crazy. And I, I talked to one of the um, employees at one of these stores. He says, man, you got to get here early in the morning because we get a shipment in every day and they're all sold out. Yeah, so, it was uh, the same thing with bicycles. Like, uh, I remember when... Uh, when March, when March hit, and uh, my wife and I were kind of like, "Yeah, this might be a, this might be a SHTF WROL pick your fancy military acronym of the day." You know what I mean? One of those things. This might be one of those scenarios. Like, uh, y'all know Fubar? This might be a Fubar scenario. Yeah, it definitely was, and and so maybe, maybe we bought, we bought bicycles because we're like, yo, if there's no gas. We're riding bikes. You got to have bikes. You got to have bikes. Yeah, we, we tried replacing a bike and that, that didn't work. But Yeah. Two weeks after we bought those bikes, they were all off the shelves. There was nothing left. <laughs> Your timing couldn't have been better. <laughs> you saw the writing on the wall. I mean, we just wanted bikes because we had nothing else to do. Like, we weren't thinking tactically. We, we, we weren't thinking like, oh, man, stuff is going down. We better do the tactically appropriate thing and buy a bike before the stuff gets bad. No, nah, we were like, yo, we have nothing to do. We're going... <laughs> We need a we need a bicycle. We're bored. Get on a bike, yeah, a, a bike is so much more fun than a treadmill. Yeah, but don't tell that to my med students. We'll, we'll tell them that I was doing the the tactical thing, and they'll be like, "Yo, that's so cool!" And I'll be like, "Yep, yeah, you should see my battlefield bike." <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a piece of crap I got from Academy. I, I, I've got it all camouflaged and everything. It's got uh, all sorts of hidden stuff. <laughs> True story. My wife and I actually got matching bikes. Like as as I, as dorky as that sounds. Purely because that was all that was left. I, you know, I noticed that when I was at your place the other day that your bikes were matching. And yeah. Now, now that you mention it, well, when when it's slim pickings, you you take what you can get. Right. Like, look, I didn't care if I had a fancy bike. It just I needed a bike that I can fit in because I'm like five foot four, and it turns out that getting a bike when you're five foot four as an adult is actually pretty hard. Um, <laughs> like, I can't I can't actually reach the floor on that bike. Like I, I gotta like hop into it a little bit. And you pull it up next to the curb and uh, jump on. Honestly, like you know how like back in the day, 
you didn't really mount a horse. You had that little horse step stool thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a, a bike step stool. No, but I really should actually. <laughs> well, I'm glad you picked one up. Yeah. But you got a kettlebell. That's awesome. Well, not yet. I haven't been able to find one in stock. I might have to go on to one of the online retailers and get it shipped. But even um, they're all backordered. It's it's pretty wild. But notice that that's folks who were trying to find ways to move, uh, James and myself included, had to resort to to gear to make up for what we couldn't. So think about those who, let's be honest, don't necessarily have the means. Like for me, buying a like a cheap bike wasn't like it was inconvenient. I didn't like it, but. It, it didn't... It wasn't going to break the bank. Right. I didn't have to sacrifice food at the table to get a bike. Right. And that's not the case for everybody. Uh, for a majority of Americans, honestly, even the purchase of a bike it puts a strain because uh, of our financial situation where um, uh, people are living from paycheck to paycheck and that just makes things difficult for, uh, for us. So I guess... We're we're looking at all of this. Um, we're looking at all of this stuff coming out as a result of the uh, virus, and now we are seeing adverse events. So, we, because you know, in medicine we have adverse events, right? Adverse reactions. Our adverse events seem to be showing up in the form of domestic abuse, um, suicide. Uh, drug overdoses. Straight up panic attacks. Yeah, straight up panic attacks, all of these kinds of things. And we have been facing one of the largest uncontrolled, unrandomized experiments in history, if not the largest. You know, quarantining 320 million people, what does that do to the mental health of the population? And, and thus far, it's been a very strange strange and i want to say negative outcome but normally when we talk about negative outcomes in research it means nothing happened but now i'm saying when i'm saying a negative outcome i'm i'm meaning i think you mean bad just a strip right is <laughs> something is happening and it it's very negative so it's it's a positive outcome that's a negative result how's so that that's very confusing in normal people English, but to the folks who speak doctor, that makes sense. <laughs> the last time we recorded this, like the first attempt, I would have agreed with you wholeheartedly. This weird paper came out um, between these two takes where um, it's, a, it's a polarizing event, I'm noticing. So, um, very much. Like a, a large like Gallup poll, whatever came out. A bunch of folks were, uh, were surveyed to see how they felt about various different aspects about themselves pre and post the plague oh um, yeah i saw that yeah and like a, a significant amount of folks it was like almost two-thirds or something like that said that they came out like they feel like better after all this has gone down and i'm like that's pretty cool so two-thirds of folks so are like yeah i feel like i'm a better person i'm more moral or whatever like it, it was it was I, I haven't read it yet so i can't go into full detail because i haven't gone there yet but from what i understood from uh some of the folks talking about it it was Something in that area of half to two-thirds of folks had some sort of major psych transformation that made them feel, per their self-report, as if they benefited, plus or minus the actual insanity. Like, the that's a weird one, we're talking about psych. The, their mental state improved, their spiritual state improved, regardless of the actual reality of the scenario. However, for the other one-third, 
things got not just a little worse, but holy crap worse. Right. So yeah. for those who had it good, I guess it was maybe augmented, like they felt how good they had it. And for those who have it bad, now they're um, how you say it? There's a creek and they have no paddle. Well, I, I think it has unmasked. Un. Oh, that was a bad unmasked. <laughs> oh no! I went revealed. There. Revealed. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna kind of have to stick with the unmasked thing because <laughs> because of that discussion. But uh, some chinks in our societal armor um, that were not evident as long as people were out of the house. Right. And now they're back in the house and things were not as great as they they could have been. Now, going back to the Gallup poll, I think it was uh, uh, 50 some odd percent um, responded, give or take a few percentage points, responded that um, they look back at things they were doing before the pandemic and realized that how unnecessary these things were um, and why were they doing them and they don't want to get started. And uh, another telling, uh, oh, now I'm, I'm blanking. There was a certain percentage that didn't even want to go back to their jobs. Right. <laughs> it tells you how poor the job was. Let's be real. This, this has been a transformative year that does not imply good, by the way, for the, um, for the new agey folks. This has been a transformative year for all of us, for better or for worse. And, I mean, hey, good for y'all if, if you came out better, but a lot of this is a lot of pressure, and that pressure really, really, really magnified the scenario. So how do we put this into context? For us, health is movement, right? Yeah, yeah. And then... Whatever yeah, that movement may be. Exactly. And now we're in a scenario where the thing we need to do to stay alive and to stay honestly safe for our sakes and for our uh, for our fellow citizens is to pretty much bunker down, to not move much. And now we're watching all the consequences of lack of movement. Now, some of that is a genuine socioeconomic uh, phenomenon, like just straight up, if life sucks and the things that kept you operational are down, life sucks harder. But for even those who have it good, I've seen so much more just straight up anxiety for folks who seem to have their stuff together and have no, no like, even, even their stuff, like I ask them like, Hey, is anything stressing you out lately? And they're like, nah, I'm good. It's just this, this Corona stuff. But like, I have food, I have a job, like everything's good. But by the way, I've had three panic attacks in the past week. And I'm like, yo, like, you know, you're not so good, man. You're not so good. I mean, that's why they're coming in. They know something's off. They just don't know what it is. And the thing is, I tell a lot of folks like, um, one of the things that we're really poor at doing as, as a medical system, like MDDO, whatever, is figuring out and talking about what the hell anxiety is when it's not a disorder. And why it's connected to depression when it's not a disorder. Right, right. So like um, there's this talk I love to give to my, to my med students, to my residents, and I give a version of it to my patients even where I explain like, look, anxiety isn't necessarily a problem. An anxiety disorder is a problem, but that's because disorder by virtue of the word, implies problem. But anxiety on its own is actually kind of a really good thing. Like, you want anxiety to some degree. It will uh, keep you alive. Right. It also tells you what to do, which if you don't know what to do, you don't do nothing. 
Right. Uh, I mean, there is in there is normal anxiety involved with any decision making process that's built into our system. It it allows us to look for details that we would otherwise be not aware of and take those into consideration when it becomes disordered is when we we become so anxious that everything overwhelms us and we can no longer make regular normal decisions because of the anxiety right and and we know this like academically speaking like uh there was this dude um it was it was something gray and mcnaughton published it like in the late 80s um, but that became, this literature became essentially the textbook for for the field. What happened was this guy basically read every damn neuroscience paper and every neuropsych paper and everything neuroeffective stuff like Piaget, the whole yeah, nine. Nothing better to do, you know. It was something that was very good to do, honestly. I mean, when you're a professor, you profess, I guess. But what ended up happening was you read. He, you better be reading. Right. He synthesized it all together, and then he wrote this monster of a book that I'll be honest took me like three years to read half of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's pretty dense if it's taking you that long to get through it. It's it's a hard book, man. But what ends up it's a uh, it's the neurobiology of anxiety, and it's a, it's a phenomenal beast of a read. But what happens is he frames these ideas basically. Actually, let, let's let's do it like this. You guys want to do some neuroscience? Let's do some neuroscience. Yeah. Hey, you know we did physics recently, so let's do neuroscience. I mean, we keep it light in this show, right? Hey, it isn't, it isn't rocket science. It's also our show, so we could do whatever we want. <laughs> whatever we want. Let's do some neuroscience. Let's dig in because this is important. We, As I had mentioned in the previous experiment, we are doing a massive neurophysics uh, psychiatry experiment right now. So let's let's dig in. All right. So, all right. Let's look under the hood. So I want you, I want to set up this, this, this almost like thought experiment. It's not a thought experiment. Just, just model this with me, guys. So I want you to think of something that is unequivocally good for you and not good, like healthy or good, like, you know, beneficial in the long, I'm talking about like, if consumed, then pleasure, like, like a donut, right? Right. Jocko would be so disappointed in me. Um, yeah, like a donut. It's a, it's a keto donut. Exactly. A keto donut. There you go. <laughs> Almond flour. I, this, I, yes, it's, it's good. Let me put some context to this. There's this guy There's this guy whose uh, YouTube channel I love to follow, and his podcast I love to follow. It's a Jocko Willink. He's, a, he's a, a seal. And every other episode, he finds a way to hate on donuts. <laughs> <laughs> and like, look, I have no relation to the guy. I don't know the guy for nothing. But after like years of listening to his show, every time I see a donut, I hear his voice telling me just like no and i'm like no, donut yeah I'm like where are you coming from get out of my head <laughs> but, but minus voices. minus for that guy donuts donuts good thing okay so yeah, for a yeah. donut like you see it it's there it's like the simpson donut right like it's right. it's like the, the the pink one with the sprinkles mm-hmm. and you know if you put that in your mouth you'll be happy for at least a few moments so when you see that there is a system in your brain that's designed to make you approach that. So we call it, guess what? The behavioral approach system. And what that is, it's it's a piece of software that aligns all of your drives and your uh, movement patterns to pursue the thing that you want. So if you see the donut, you'll activate all of the systems to get you to that donut. So if the donut's right in front of you, you'll walk. If it's up like, I don't know, 
up a shelf, you'll climb up. You know what I mean? If it's across... If you can smell it, you'll search for it until you find where that smell is coming from. Exactly. If somehow you smell that donut from across the street, you'll do the frogger thing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> wherever that donut is, you're going to go for it. That's right. Especially if it's a donut that you like. In my exactly. Case, apple, fritters. For, apple fritters are good. For me, it's... You know the... Um, I think it's French cruller? Is that I, what they're I'm, called? Um, I'm not familiar. What? I'm really bad with my donut names, man. Like... Like, no shame. I, I do enjoy my donuts, but I have no idea what the hell they're called. Maple anyway, bacon. there you go. But but all this to say, there's something that you want. And if you see something that you know you enjoy, even at a basic level, you will activate the systems to approach it in the broadest level, right? So, so this is kind of like uh, the crush that you have in, in high school that uh, you're going, um, I really like her and I want to go talk to her. Not quite, actually, but we'll get there. Okay. So... Just the opposite. Let's imagine something that we do not like. For example, um, I was having this talk the other day with a couple buddies, uh, uh, Guru Mike, actually, who, who you've met now. Yes, yes. And we were talking about how there, there are certain things that are like hardwired in the human system. Like, uh, So neuroscience is weird because we have like neurons that are hardwired to do certain things. And then we have all of the weird little cool software things we layer on top of it. And I'm saying that with a computer metaphor, obviously, but basically yeah. you have your nerves and then you have the patterns in your nerves. Yeah, you have your uh, pro your operating system and then your inter user interface on laying on top of that. Exactly. But we actually have um, hardwired structures at this point that respond to certain stimuli without any conditioning. What does that mean? There are certain stimuli that for our species are intrinsically terrifying. For example, if you give us a gaping hole with sharp pointy things lining the hole, as in fangs, we generically don't like gaping maws with fangs in our general direction. We tend to go the opposite way, right? Um, if you try, to, if you ask like any kid to make a scary noise, they're not going to go. Ee! They're going to like growl. Yeah, they'll growl at you. They'll hiss at you. They'll yell and scream at you. Right, right. Like they'll do their best impersonation of the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Right. Yeah, you know I mean, but there's yeah. a reason for that. Like that, that, that low rumble, that growl. That's a hardwired thing. We are conditioned as a species to go. Got it. Wherever that came from is not good. So there are yeah, some stimuli. It's more, than, it's more than a startle reflex. It's it's a preservation reflex, if, if you will, that gives you information about the environment that, that lets you know that the environment is dangerous and you need to leave. Right. It's a GTFO reflex. It's the opposite of a horror flick where there's scary music on and they decide to go in the empty dark house anyway. You're doing a really good job foreshadowing me, man. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, true story. If I had my own lab, it would be like a like a horror, like a haunted house. Well, that would be interesting. That oh, would be, be interesting. It would be so dope. I don't know if the IRB would ever approve of the crap I would think of. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it may have already been done. <laughs> probably, honestly, it probably has. But okay, so we have something that is some that that is intrinsically not pleasant. So let's say, you know what, a giant snake. Like Nagini from Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. You walk the hell yeah. away from that. Oh, or um, run. Right. So um, there are things you want. You approach it. There are things you don't want. You do not approach it. In fact, you get the hell back. Um, but that's actually wired by the same system. It's still a dopaminergic system. It's still a activate the body system. It's just one activates the body towards, one activates the body away. But it's the same hardware. That's a big deal here. So it's the same anxiety, it just gives different motivations to do different actions. Right. And that's where that crush thing you brought up came in. What happens if you have a stimuli that is both 
something you want and something you do not want. That's why we bring up the crush. Think about the first hormone surge and you look at that girl or guy or whatever and you go, I think I want to date that. Because I'm saying that for a reason. The way our system's right. wired, it's not fully articulate. Like It's not the girl or the guy you want. It's the image of the girl or the guy in your head. It's, it's the, the fantasy. The, thing, the idea that what is it going to be like for me to date that person? Exactly. Like that person's not a person to you yet. That's that's an idea that you're superimposing on that person. But yeah, you don't even know that person in many cases. Exactly. Um, so you swipe right or left or whichever way. And then what ends up happening <laughs> is now you have somebody in front of you that simultaneously has the potential to do real good for you and real bad. And you have to figure out, so do I approach or do I run away? So you think well, in your head, you know what? You're not going to know before it happens whether or not something good or bad will happen. Or once you're with them for a, a month, uh, a year, a decade, if something good or bad is going to happen as a result of uh, your relationship with them. Exactly. So let's play this out. You have something you don't want, something you want, you don't know which. That's what anxiety is at a technical level. We actually have a separate system operated by what you call a septohippocampus, whose job is to, when you have both drives spinning up at the same time, say, hold up, hit the brakes, recalculating, let's process this. And what it does, this is the critical part now. This is where it gets clinical for us. The thing that we call the behavioral inhibition system, whose job is to take these competing drives and balance it, what it does is activate three separate phenomenon. And these three phenomenon become the pathologies of anxiety when they go haywire. So let's talk about that real quick. I'll tell you what, why don't we pause for a minute and then we'll get into those three phenomenon. Gladly. Here's a fun fact. So the more we research anxiety, the more we, re we realize that it's actually really, really connected to consciousness. In fact, some of the more recent literature is suggesting that consciousness and anxiety are actually one in the same. The idea is, when we know what we want and we know what we don't want, we can kind of run on autopilot and we only have to pay attention if and only if we don't know what's going on. What humans seem to be exceptional at is modeling and assuming and abstracting so much that we can maintain our anxiety at a baseline level so that we can always, at least to some degree, pay attention. Once upon a time, we were so nervous that we woke up. Okay, so we've got three components of anxiety. Let's let's really dig into these for now because when we can understand these three components, it'll help us understand our patients a bit more thoroughly. And not just our patients, but it'll help us. We're talking about society here. This you is know, a human we, thing. <laughs> this, this is a human thing. Understanding each other and seeing each other's reactions will help us. So when, when someone goes all crazy on us on a, uh, a Facebook thread and you have to uh, uh, end up blocking someone or, or and you don't want to, you can at least understand the source of their anxiety and ultimately the source of their response. Right. And I'll be very real. This is actually really humbling to talk about because just because you have knowledge of the system doesn't make you immune to the system. It just means you know how powerless you are sometimes. Uh, to break human code. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we talk about leaps yeah. of faith. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. at some point, you got to, like, surrender to the thing that you are and do what you can do with what you got. Like, I'm never going to be a bat or a dinosaur. <laughs> and whenever there's ice cream in the house, I'm going to be eating it. Right. But the thing <laughs> is, now that you know that, 
you can read you can direct your intervention somewhere else, right? So you can force yeah. it. That's going in a different direction. We'll, we'll get there in a second. Hold on, hold on. All right. <laughs> let's let's oh, move back in a little bit. Okay, three three components. Yeah, yeah, that thing. All right. So uh, again, one more time, let's talk about the context. You have systems for approach, right? That's the donut. Right. I want it. There's systems for avoid. That's Nagini from Harry Potter. That's a snake, by the way. You stay the hell away. The basilisk. Otherwise, basilisk, right. Right. basilisk. There you go. And then there's the things that make you pause, specifically because you might want it, but you might not, and you don't really know because it's kind of both, like your first crush. Yeah, and maybe your second or third crush. There you go. Let's be real. I got I got to prove myself worthy to my wife every day. So yes, yes, absolutely. And that's how you want it to be. Absolutely, absolutely. But anyway, so when you end up with these ambiguous systems, right? When uh, something that is simultaneously possibly good or bad, what you do is you spin up three systems in order to figure out what to do next. Now, the three systems are, one is um, essentially introspection. You access your memories, right? You start to remember, and you're scrambling, you're searching your data banks, looking for phenomenon that were similar enough to the current phenomenon that you mm-hmm. might be able to extrapolate. So you're like, you know what? That girl's really cute. I want to talk to her. You know what? The last time I spoke with somebody who was around that level of attractive, here's how it went. And you're like, you know what? It went well. It was cool. I was slick. We had a conversation. It was pretty nice. You're like, you know what? Let's do this. And the real issue we're facing right now is as a society, we've never faced a pandemic. We have historical records, but there's no one in the United States has, has ever faced anything like this that's alive. Right. Or if they are there in their late 90s to early 100s, and they're getting ready to pass away, and um, they're not able to share that knowledge effectively. Right. Let's be real. This is our first live drill at something like this. Yep. Now, that's system one, right? So you, you access one. your memories. Um, and Prior experience. Right. Anything remotely close to the thing. So. That's the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. Um, but you access your memories. Okay. System two, you actively begin your uh, what you call your exploratory systems. Um, your ser- you're seeking your searching systems. Now that's a that's a technical phenomenon described by uh, uh, Jak Panksepp. He was a what do you call it, a neuro an affective neuroscientist. What he what he learned with his research was so you have this thing called ethology. Ethology is the study of a species or of a of an entity in its own environment, so that you can understand a system in the real environment. So, like how it, how it really lives, rather than not in a zoo, but you have to go to the jungles of uh, uh, Africa to understand how that particular simian, for example, interacted. Exactly. For example, every mammal, by definition, has a limbic system. However, the way that limbic system manifests in different species. Is subtly different. For example, uh, for uh, dogs, right? If you activate their uh, their activate their seeking system, their exploratory systems, they'll sniff the ground, they'll paw, they'll kind of look around, they'll do that type of thing. Specifically, they'll paw, give, sniff. They'll, they'll examine their environment. Right. If you do the same thing to a rodent, they'll probably sniff also because they're rodents. They have better noses than we do. However, if you do it to a cat, they'll stalk. Like they'll hug the corners and they'll like do this thing where they're like flanking everything. Trying to look for yeah. corners, they're looking for different angles, right? And I mean, they use their ears quite a bit because their ears are so attuned for examination of the environment, right? And so on and so forth. So for every mammalian species, there's a stereotype set of exploratory behaviors. For humans, it's you walk. Like when you when you get us into our exploratory mode, 
we specifically seek out information. That's how we do it. We go to the internet. Yeah, well, that's a new phenomenon. That's that's a hijacking of the system. But once upon a time, like let's say, well, let's we say had to go you to the library at one point. Exactly, and even before that, honestly, you would just experiment. So, like, let's say you have the fruit in front of you, and you don't know if that thing's poisonous or not, and you want to figure it out. You're probably going to watch a bunch of other things do it first. Like it's the right. uh, you go first. No, no, you go first. Yeah, see what ha- what other animals are eating it. Right, that's the human thing. We we observe. Like our our reflex you know, is observation. Sniff it. You might lick it a little bit. Right, right. See, that's actually a protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's and system two. We we do the exploratory thing. We we seek out more data. Now the cool thing is that scaffolds that can be trained. So once upon a time, before the time of the internet, that meant read a book. Before read a book, it was go out and do it yourself or learn from somebody. Like apprenticeships were a big thing. Exactly. Before, before there was widespread or widespread literacy. Right. And training, the, basically. Training. Yeah. Yeah. And then system three, this one's a little bit different. So system one is access memory. System two is seek out more data. System three is a valence, it's a valence system. So valence is a technical term for whether something makes you like vaguely, generically yay or nay. Like I'm not even gonna say happy or sad. It's like general approval or disapproval. Now, how does that look in your well, our hypothetical crush situation, the valence component? That's uh, where we're gonna I, go. I, I can I can see from an experience standpoint. Hey, I've you know, I've approached girls before and it turned out okay. And then I can also see the you know I've talked to her friends and she seems like a really nice person. So you you've done your research, but now how does the valence component fit into this whole anxiety-ridden experience? So this is the critical part. Now, the valencing system takes all of the data that you just accessed, both memories and external, and it generically weighs them towards the negative. It generally weighs towards disapproval. It assumes that something negative is going to come out. It assumes you're probably going to. In the case of the crush, be mocked, turned down, rejected, basically rejected, exactly, and and have a a negative social outcome as a result. And you, you hope that your crush is not going to kill you like a lion or tiger would. But I mean, if we were mantises, we'd be we'd be screwed. (laughs) Yeah, mantids are kind of like that. Yeah. I don't like you, but I'm going to eat you. I like being mammalian. <laughs> it's a much kinder reproductive phenomenon. Being a mantis sucks. Yeah, although bears are pretty well known for eating their young. Yeah, you're right. But all this to say, three systems, they spin up. One is memories, two is seeking, three is valence. And what happens up happening is when you combine these together, you end up with a specific phenomenon called rumination. That means to think, to ponder, right. to, to analyze. But you analyze with a bias towards the negative. Why would that be important? Let's say you take something that's novel, something new, like that crush you want to speak with. You or a new pirate. Right, right, right. I was going to say, that's a benign thing. The worst case scenario is you say no and they pick on you. You don't get to go to the, to the school prom. I don't care. Whatever. High school stuff. Yeah, you hang out with, with your buddies who didn't get dates as well and you play games and have a good time anyway. Exactly. Now, what if the thing that you didn't know that you were trying to analyze was something like the very first time you saw a porcupine? Or you know what? No, no, no. The very first time you saw a te- like a a saber toothed tiger. There you go. Why not saber toothed okay. tiger? <laughs> Man, those teeth are amazing. 
I know, but keep in mind, you're biased to hate them anyway, but look, I'm right. assuming a, a, right. a, a tiger pup is like cute anyway. But you see a saber-toothed tiger pup, you're like, I don't know if I should be afraid of this thing because it's adorable. You don't know mom is a thing yet. But what ends up happening is you assume that that's probably not something to touch. Because the best case scenario is, I guess, you cuddle with a tiger. Like the Tiger King, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we went there to Tiger King. Oh, man. Carol Baskin, man. Anyway. Um, yeah. However, the worst case scenario is you die. Because mama is going to protect her cub. Right. And jump on you and break your neck and eat you. Right. There was this really cool, I, think, I forget if it was DreamWorks or some other studio, but uh, the, they, they made this animated flick. It was The Croods. Yeah, I saw The Croods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a fun movie. The dad had the best modeling of like anxiety outside of like. Right. Ex- outside of like um, Inside Out. We we cannot leave this cave. Right, right, right. Or we else you will die. Cave. <laughs> but that that's how it works, right? His his system is valence towards anxiety such that everything that is new is bad and will kill you. That's actually a thing that's in our heads. We have to train that out of us half the time. And so we are facing something that is novel. It's not technically new, but it's novel. Something we haven't experienced. So we don't have the first system. Now I'm I'm going back to the COVID thing. We mm-hmm. don't have any point of reference for the first system to work on. We can, and we really didn't have anything to go on for the second uh, system initially because we're getting these uh, new reports. We don't know if the data is accurate or not. And we really hadn't characterized the virus and it's we we knew what family it came from and so we expected it to behave like others and now it's not behaving like others and in fact it's behaving somewhat at least has some of the mechanisms similar to hiv which we've never actually truly solved either so we're we we have faced as a society a situation in which our first two systems are of no initial value to us so we go to that third system, and anxiety is going through the roof. More or less. Now, there is a subtle nuance there. Because there is no data, we go and seek out data. So because we have the means of science and all that good stuff, what we have available to us that wasn't really a thing pre-Enlightenment, like pre-Renaissance stuff, mm-hmm. is science. Like, we can go, hey, the data doesn't... Like, our seeking pattern as a population now, it's, wow, we have no idea what the hell this is. We need to study it. Get the lab coat. (laughs) Let's sequence it. Now, uh, one of the beautiful things of uh, recent discoveries in the last 20 years is sequencing in uh, such a rapid nature. So we were able to sequence it within such a quick time frame. Right. We knew at least what its basic code was. We didn't know exactly what that code meant. And we were still hashing that out. We've recently had some modeling done by supercomputers that are going, maybe this is not a cytokine cascade. I mean, we're going a little technical. Maybe it's a bradykinin cascade, but that's neither here nor there. It, it's just amazing that we have the capabilities. We have the technology. Exactly. Once upon a time, that conversation would have taken like a decade we had that conversation one month into Corona. Right. Now, right. That, the, the thing is, that's only useful at an at a emotional stabilization level for very few people. Like, for those doing the benchwork sciences, for those who are using that data boots on the ground doing the work, that actually does carry meaning, right? Because yeah. it's an active thing. Like, if you're doing the science, now you are doing the research. Now you've got your system spun up and activated. You have a task now. Like, 
it stopped being, oh God, what do I do? It's got it. To solve that problem, here's my task. And now you direct your energy towards that task. But that's only for those who are in an environment where they get to do that. What happens to the rest of us who just have to like wait for the scientists from insert ivory tower to make an answer? They're stuck in that room and they're stuck in that negative valence that you were describing. They don't get to do the seeking behavior or they try to. And all they get is like the breadcrumbs that spill out on the internet because, you know, barf out anything, it'll end up on YouTube eventually. <laughs> well, and we faced a uh, an existential crisis in the medical world because we didn't have any known effective treatments. Uh, and so we started doing that uh, two, uh, stage two thing where we were experimenting, but we were experimenting with treatments that we all already had, and we didn't know what to do, what combinations to use. Right. We looked at the past, hoping it would give us guidance for the future, and then we just started doing the best we could with what we had. And some things worked, some things didn't, some things actually were worse, and that's that's to be expected. But the, the difficulty we face in the medical world now is everything we're doing is public, it's online. And now it, it used to be the doctor's office was kind of an ivory tower. You went in, the doctor said, take your aspirin. You said, okay, I don't know why, but I'll take it. But now you have uh, all of these social media outlets where we're saying, why aren't we using this particular medication or this particular combination of medications? Because I just know that it's going to work. And uh, from a physician standpoint, it's, it's complicated our work significantly and increased our anxiety significantly. Right. And I'll be honest, I like, I like the transparency because one of the big issues that you and I have in our normal job is that most folks understand so little about the body that they can't have the conversation. I really do like that people are talking about it. The trade-off is you got to know stuff to talk about stuff. Right. You, you can't just say, oh, I just feel it's going to work out. Right. Well, all of the studies have said thus far that it's not working out. It's, it's nice that you have that feeling, but let's really dig into this. But at the same time, that's, that's psychoadaptive. So let's, let's play this from the perspective of the one who doesn't know. Right. So let, let's flip the equation now. So oh, we're, we're turning the tables. There you go. So let's assume you have no medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. which is appropriate. That's majority of our patients, right? I mean, we can't send 320 million people to med school. It's just somebody somewhere would be very happy, but not, yeah, no. <laughs> no. So let, let's, let's run that. Let's assume no medical knowledge. And the only thing that you have to go on is the breadcrumbs of data from the tertiary, maybe quaternary sources and the people who should be the primary sources. You're watching their mechanism and the mechanism that they have to deal with is in and of itself sloppy by virtue of the mechanism it is. And it's slow. It's meant to be slow. It's meant to be sloppy. It's meant to be deliberate. That is incredibly destabilizing to a psyche. Because basically the, the, the outside world is watching the medical community stumble around looking for an answer. And that doesn't mean that we aren't good at our job. It's because we're at the stumble around phase. Like this is actually exploratory behavior doing exploratory things. But that doesn't give you any answers. No, it, it's like a baby that's just been born and you're, you're telling the two-day-old to start walking and then go run a marathon by next week. And we're kind of going, well, we're still developing our sense of balance. So you're going to have to give us a little time. Right. Like we're still at Google Gaga face. Yeah. 
we're still uh, we're still sucking down bottles or, or nursing, and uh, we're not going to be running the Boston Marathon anytime soon. Right, but keep in mind that makes a very big gap, and that gap needs to be filled. Like, yeah, the destabilization to a psyche that that'll cause is a nightmare. Like, there's a reason why so many panic attacks and so much suicide and so much violence essentially starting to erupt from the stress of this. It's because the people who typically should have the answers, that's us, are not in a place where we have the answers, which is appropriate given the scenario, but that doesn't make the scenario any less crappy. So now they have to find answers just to stabilize their minds or else they go off and die. So you, well, and you compound that with the quarantine where people are no longer working and they don't know when they're going to work next. And they don't have those connections that we've already talked about because of the quarantine. And now they're, all of their systems are in red alert mode and they don't have a way to compensate. They don't have a way to deal with it. Now, here's the part where we talk about how to deal with it. Here we go. Let's do it. All right. So look, I, I went into a little tirade about, um, not tirade, that's the wrong word. I went to like a mini didactic about how the behavioral inhibition system runs, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we have ambiguous versus non-ambiguous. You have things that you don't understand and know, therefore spinning up the system. You get anxious, and the anxiety will stay spun up until you get a satisfactory answer. Mm-hmm. And in the specific context of this pandemic, the answers do not exist yet. Therefore, everybody is in spun up anxiety because the answers are required in order to shut it down. All right, that's a scenario. So. How do you apply what we just talked about in order to stabilize your mind without collapsing into um, dangerous dogma type things, right? Yeah, falling into a black hole, right. essentially. Right, because keep in mind, we, the doctors, can be just as guilty of it too. Oh, sure. We, like, for example, uh, let's just elephant room thing. The hydroxychloroquine conversation, right? Oh, that's, that's like a blue whale in the room. Basically. So <laughs> I don't want anybody thinking that... Um, I think it works. However, if there's data to show me that it works, I'm good to go with it. However, because the data doesn't exist, I ain't about it. That does not mean that I don't believe it because belief isn't part of the conversation. It's the data doesn't exist. Therefore, I don't have an opinion. However. Yeah. When someone asks me about giving that, I said, at this point, I don't have data that supports giving it. Right. That doesn't mean it doesn't have the future of developing it. Um, but it just doesn't exist right now. Right. But the thing is, there are some uh, folks, and if we're not holding ourselves accountable, that can easily become, I don't believe in hydroxychloroquine, it's bad, period. That's the thing that we have to be careful of as physicians, because if we take the negative data as confirmation of lack of effect, that's not the same as saying we know, we don't know. That's saying we know and it doesn't work, which isn't the case. We say we don't know, therefore. Right. On the other end, it's, hey, look, it worked in one or two cases, maybe. So therefore, it must work. That's the uh, other glitch, right? It's, hey, the doctors don't know, but we can. That's an easy conclusion to jump to when you are searching for answers to a desperate situation. Right. And let's remind everybody, we are still animals. We are still mammals. Our minds, our psyches actually need answers in order to stabilize. I can't blame either population for saying it is or it isn't. Because for the sake of your soul, if you needing an answer is what you need to operate, I can't blame you for needing an answer. But at the same time, we need a better way to navigate this. So here's the cheat code. Check this out. All right, let's cheat. Let's get the code. Or I guess hijack. Hacking? Let's call this hack. I I said software so many times. Let's call this biohacking. There you go. Um, We'll make the uh, 
who's that guy? Asper the um the bulletproof coffee guy. That guy. We'll make him proud. Oh, okay, okay. I forget his name, man, but he's he's like the like the trendy biohacker in the podcast world, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> That's like a sort of shout out to you, whoever your name is. I just I can't remember whoever right you now. Are out there, if you're listening to our podcast, we're referring to you. Yeah, you're cool. We're cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so the behavioral activation system tells you to move towards. The behavioral activation system tells you also to move away. The inhibition system tells you to pause. Okay, the inhibition system tells you to pause until you have enough data to ensure movement. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have significant amounts of data to remove all doubt. It just means uh, you have enough data to make a reasonable decision. Exactly. And the minute you start moving towards something, whether that's physical or metaphorical, that begins to dampen down the anxiety system because now you're doing something. And now you have all of the weird biases and issues of that, but at least you're moving. So you moved on from anxiety to movement. Hopefully the movement's reasonable, but let's be honest, right now we don't necessarily know where to move, but here's the fun part. The system is generic. That's a big deal, actually. The system that runs our anxiety system is actually generic to all movement and all progress, which means, okay, you know what? I don't necessarily know what the answer is to this COVID issue, right? Like... That's not a theory. Like I'm telling you myself, me. I don't <laughs> yeah. know the answer to this COVID scenario. It's because we don't have a solid answer yet. Right. However, if I reorient, right, if I, instead of focusing on the answer to that question, find a new question to ask and answer, I can stabilize my mind. So instead of going, you know what, I can't, I don't know the answer to this COVID thing, but I have patients in front of me and they need my help. Right. Whatever the COVID scenario is, I'm going to focus on these people in front of me that's actually stabilizing. Does that make sense? Because you can act on that. It gives you something to take your attention away from the current crisis. And and I think that's one of the key factors that we talked about with this Gallup poll, that uh, a majority of people, I think it was 70% developed a new hobby. And I think it was 50%, I want to say, were indicating that they were going to continue that hobby once the pandemic was resolved. Right. So they were given something to take their mind off of their current anxiety, something productive, something that they could feel that they could accomplish that honestly replaced what they were accomplishing in the public sphere before the pandemic broke out. Right. There's this, um, oh man, I, I, I hate these quotes sometimes. But <laughs> like, it's, it's like in that same turf as live, laugh, love for me, man. Like I just, yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like, look, when it's right, it's right. So I, I got I to own up to that. So there's this idea that like, uh, you, you should have the wisdom to know the things you can affect and have the wisdom. Uh, it's like, know the things you can affect, know the things that you cannot affect, and have the wisdom to be able to tell the difference. That's like right. the path yeah, to happiness, right? Yeah, that's like the Lord's, uh, that's not the Lord's prayer, but... Um, I know it's a Christian thing. I just... Yeah. <laughs> I, I think oh, everyone man. knows what we're referring to. Exactly, that, that thing. But the, the idea is, the, the anxiety system is actually the application of that idea. It's, look, if we focus on the big gargantuan task, like if we really zoom out, the coronavirus ain't that big of a deal because we got like, you know, eventually the world's going to end. By the way, heat death of the universe. By the way, we're all mortal. By the way, like you can zoom out so far. Oh, now, that- now we're going on to that whole mortality uh, debate on uh, The Princess Bride. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. You must know that you would know that because I'm a man. I'm immortal. Right. <laughs> True story. I just watched Princess Bride for like the billionth time with my son the other day. Oh, that's a classic. Oh, it is. Oh man. I just I just need him to get old enough to be able to pronounce inconceivable, and we're gonna have a party. You know, he needs to say inconceivable now so you can record it as your your ringtone. Oh man, that would be so good. But anyway, um, what what I was getting at is, ah, oh, crap. What was I getting at? Sorry, I'm thinking of a Princess Bride and my son now. It's <laughs> mortality. Yes, and... yes, yes, yes. So, depending on how you shift your focus, I can make anything existentially terrifying. Like, okay, so let's focus on. By the way, someday we'll all die. By the way, some die. Someday, everybody who knows you will also die. Right. If you focus we, on that, there's only one way out of this life. Right. If you focus on that part of existence, you're screwed from the get-go. Yeah. You will be permanently anxious and depressed, and then you will be coming to us in our office and asking us for a medication. Right. Unless you're like Ray Kurzweil and Elon Musk doing the weird like neural net like singularity transform us into cyborgs thing, you probably believe in the end of time. Or you probably believe that we'll die. Yeah. Yeah. You, you anticipate that that's going to happen sooner or later and preferably later. Exactly. But that's that's not to say that death doesn't exist. It's more so you got to shift focus. Like, okay, fine. Instead of saying, we're all going to die someday, maybe it's, hey, I only have one life to live. But maybe that's too terrifying for you. Like, let's be real. That sounds pretty scary too. But, okay, I only have one life to live. Maybe that's, I'm alive right now. That's a bit different. That's softer, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's no shame it, in that. That's a softer sentence. And that's okay. That's it means the same exact thing. thing. Yeah. I'm still alive. Right. As they say, say in the South, I'm still north of dirt and taking in nutrition. Exactly. But maybe I'm still alive isn't good enough because maybe your life, as far as you're perceiving, sucks. And no right. shame to that. If you think your life sucks, maybe it does suck. Or maybe it doesn't, but maybe it does. That doesn't matter right now. You can go, okay, maybe my life overall sucks, but I still have, I don't know, my puppy or my friends or whatever you have. You know what I mean? Yeah, you shift right. focus to what you can. So like that you can influence and right. know where you can have an effect. And then here's where it gets dangerous. Because that's that's like the cheat code, right? Like how to fix anxiety? Right. Shift the focus to something you can influence. Mm-hmm. What about those folks who have, as far as they can tell, like within the limits of their perception, don't have anything. Like those with, this is actually a really cool thing that I, I was trying to do some research in back in 2017. Mm-hmm. There's like a there's like a epidemic pandemic. It's weird because pandemic is like the the watchword now. Right. There's an epidemic of loneliness in our country. Yeah, because it's our country, it would be epidemic. Yeah. So there's an epidemic of loneliness in our country. There, the uh, what happened was like another survey thing. It was kind of like, hey, how many close friends do you have? And close was defined like, like if if we went full Walking Dead, how many people would have your back right now? Right. And um, the the most common answer, right? There's mean, median, mode. The most frequent answer, the most commonly reported answer was zero. Zero. Dude, it was zero. Dude, <laughs> then we are not normal because we're greater than zero. I, I know. It's, it's nice to have people. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know you'd get my back if the grateful, er, if the grateful dead, if the dead were to come <laughs> after me. So I, I'm good there. <laughs> Just grab the machete and go, man. Let's let's have hey, a party. Man, that's why we're training. But at the same time, like, look, if you actually have nobody, or forget if you actually have people or not, if you perceive that you have nobody. That means you have nobody, as far as your brain's concerned, and that's incredibly destabilizing. So 
think about how many folks honestly don't have any sense of um, purpose at all. Well, that's depressing. It has. That's depressing because it should make you depressed. Right. And the problem is we can medicate that ish sort of right. We can turn off the system that tells you to feel that. That doesn't take away the fact that it's there. Well, and that's the that's the interesting fact about this is we can affect serotonin and dopamine and those kinds of things, but we don't truly turn the system completely off because the stimulus remains. And that's why when folks take their antidepressants and then they go into the counselors and the counselors say, well, you're taking antidepressant, but you're still depressed. And the patient doesn't always recognize that they still are. Right. So we, we can muck around with the system, but we can never truly by medication alone deactivate it. And in reality, we don't want to deactivate it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to function. Precisely. Now, getting even to a deeper rabbit hole, notice how this started off being about patients and it evolved into, like you can see where this is going if you're half paying attention, <laughs> person on the other side of this uh, audio feed. Hopefully you're still paying attention. We, we went into some pretty weird places, like mantises, but um, the reason this is important is anxiety is not actually... It's wrong to conceptualize anxiety as an individual phenomenon. That, that's the takeaway point in this elaboration. Like, it's the anxiety system is how to process novel stimuli. However, as if there's no stimuli to process, we'll make our own things. It's, it's a whole weird mess of that. But the anxiety system is really designed to teach us how to navigate our environment, right? If I want it, I'm not anxious. If I don't want it, I'm not anxious. I just get the hell away. If I don't know what I want, I'm really anxious. And if you don't know what you want, you got to find something to want. Right. That's 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 the big discussion on a Friday night for date night. So what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? What do you want to eat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That, that is such an easy conversation in our house oh, because it's like kind of avocados and meat. Like, Yeah. If my wife and I go out to a restaurant, my wife will turn to me and, and she'll say to me, what do I want to eat? <laughs> oh, man. And I'll say... You want to eat that. There you and go. We have that kind of relationship that she trusts me to say that nowadays because she generally enjoys what I choose for, but it's just kind of a fun dynamic. Right, right. But you can imagine, like, that's like the funny version of this loop. Like, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Repeat times the entirety of the Jungle Book. I would want to say that again. Exactly. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. But that's, that's anxiety at the individual level, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. I don't know what I want to do. Okay. But what if the reason you don't know what you want to do is because your your perception's a bit off, like you're focusing on the wrong thing? Okay, shift your perception. Okay, right. What if everywhere, like everywhere you place that target, right? Everywhere you try to perceive, everything seems wrong, and it might actually be wrong. That means that there might actually be a real problem. Like, let's pretend for a second. Uh, I don't know. There is a saber-toothed tiger in front of me. It hasn't bit me yet, but it is right there. What is the dose of Zoloft to make me okay with this? It's not going to. No, you get away from the tiger. Yeah, you get away from the tiger. And that's and that's kind of where I was um, heading with, with this, following you along your lines. We are seeing this increase in domestic abuse and suicide as people are coming home and being home in relationships that were always likely... Well, not not always, but some were abusive and some became abusive as a result of the stress from the pandemic. So 
we can't just zooft them out of that um, because they're going back to that anxiety-ridden environment and or they're waking up to it every morning and they can't escape from it. Right. Like, uh, so for the, um, I guess this counts as a trigger warning. Oh God. Um, <laughs> the trigger is cocked ready for it. I mean, time and a place, I guess it's, this is some dark stuff. So there's been a massive spike in depression, anxieties, uh, suicide, ideation, the whole thing. Right. Yep. And my patients are a lot of the time asking for answers, um, or at least some help, some support. And right. look, if it's something as basic as they're overwhelmed, they need an edge so they can uh, continue to operate and function so they can provide for the family. That's the easy one. Like, you know what? I don't like what this is, but at the same time, I need to give you the tools you need. Have some abuse bar, have fun. Or if I can counsel them out of it, I'll counsel them out of it. If I can get them to like move, that was the thing I was going to get at earlier, but we went a different direction. This is fine. Um, sometimes the treatment for depression is I call APS. Does that make sense? Okay. Let, let's talk APS briefly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a thing called adult protective services. Ah, okay. Now yeah. I see where you're from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I was saying. Like, I wanted to land gently into that idea because that this is going to get real nasty real quick. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot, a lot of bad. Like, we're not going to talk because we're not going to do the like torture porn thing for this show. But there's a lot of darkness out there right now. Yep. And yep. sometimes, honestly, the treatment, like, like Zoloft, isn't going to fix that. No. Nope. Like, it would be, it, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night correctly if my treatment for somebody being abused was Zoloft. You know what I mean? So the move for that is yeah. you you zoom out of medicine, you shift into the other gear, you go, all right, so is this real? Like, Do you feel safe at home? Like, is this, okay, you know what? Call DIFUS, call APS. Once upon a time, there was a thing called DIFUS. Now it's called Child Protective Services, that's CPS. Mm-hmm. CPS, depending on the state. Right, but so much of dealing with this corona thing, like the, the, stre- the mental stresses of corona has been like social, like social work. Honestly, I'm not doing much of the actual labor, it's me coordinating the social resources because at some point you have to figure out, is that home so dangerous that it's not that they're depressed, therefore medicate them. It's they're showing the appropriate signs of their system, like of their environment being pathologically dangerous. And uh, this is where we get back to like osteopathic Dr. Still stuff, right? Right. Um, back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, right? Um, you have to shift the filter to the level of pathology. So if the problem is in the DNA, Right, like if this is a cell DNA mutation, you know what? Gene therapy, or you deal with it. Like you adapt. If the right. issue is at a tissue level, hey, tissue texture changes. You know what to do. Get we that OMT get on. Yeah, quickly balance it out, and you're good to go. Right. What if it's a movement issue, like a habit? You train them. What if it's a metabolic issue? You you feed them. You know what I mean? It's another habit thing that that ends up with training. Right. But what happens if the level of pathology is outside the bounds of the patient's body? Now it's an environmental level rather than a physiologic level. And it's, right. it becomes, as a society, we have stigmatized mental illness and is to the disservice of many people who have suffered through traumatic experiences. When you define this as an environmental component, at least in some instances, now you take you can help the patient take the stigma away right? and recognize that it's their environment. And when it becomes their environment, that is something that can be changed, but it's going to take work. And sometimes it'll be very difficult. Honestly, it takes people. Yes. 
like you know what um because we're actually a social species like anxiety and depression if we really model this broadly is like the signal for one of our own to say hey guys i need some help here like uh you know what what really showed it probably the best that i've ever seen outside of like scientific literature what's that it was inside out like the pixar flick right remember sadness like the oh. emo- like like the character sadness yeah. the blue thing and, and everyone else was just oh you're always so sad and then they finally come to realize at the end that she played a vital role on the team right cuz they're like what's the point in even having you and then all of a sudden like sadness took over and uh, riley that's the name of the girl who had all the emotions and it's a weird movie it's a great movie but it's yeah, it's, it's a weird a setup weird, weirdly great movie so basically what happens is this girl um, she's she's like the the character, but not really the character of the of the movie. She has her emotions, it's like joy, sad, uh, joy, sadness, rage, um, disgust, and fear, right? Mm-hmm. And they like the the actual movie is about these five emotions learning how to work together, which is really well, dope. And Pixar did a lot of research into emotions before they put when they put this movie together. So it shows because hey, hey the neuroscience guy here is going. This movie is way too accurate to be what it is, but. <laughs> Nobody knew what sadness was about. Like the other emotions were like, why the hell are you a thing? And when sadness like really took over, um, what happened was it wasn't about those five emotions figuring it out. It wasn't about like the girl, uh, the character Riley. It was about her crying and reaching out and then her family noticing, yo, my daughter's messed up right now. We should be there for her. We need to reach out to her. Right. Well, and I I think... We're going to need to take this into another episode where we talk in more detail about some some ways we can do this because uh, this is this is huge. You know, we we've spent the last hour talking uh, in depth about what our ex- uh, society is ex- experiencing, and it might take us another hour to go into how we can uh, help our society back out of the morass that we are languishing in at the moment. This is going to be a hard couple episodes, man. It'll be good. It'll be good. And uh, we will leave it at that because this is a good point where we can um, take a break and uh, we'll come back to the next episode and we'll really get into some things that I think we can do as individuals and as communities, as well as physicians and as friends to help each other out through all of this anxiety, because, you know, that's what we humans do. We, when, when someone is down, we can, we can lift people up and help each other out. So that's what we're going to do. There you go. And uh, thanks for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to chat with you about your body, your health and how to fix things. And uh, we will see you in another couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. 
By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.